Hey everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. As always, we are brought to you by you with your support on patreon.com slash Adherent Apologetics. Today I'm here with Dr. Luke Barnes. He's a lecturer at West Sydney University with a PhD in astronomy from the University of Cambridge. So sounds like a pretty smart guy. Uh, Dr. Barnes, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So just to start off, in case someone doesn't know like who you are, could you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? So yeah, I'm a, I'm a cosmologist and an astrophysicist. Um, I live in Australia, so it's currently a very different time here than it is over there. Um, so uh, I, I got my PhD from Cambridge in uh, astronomy and then worked in Switzerland for a bit and, and now back in Sydney, uh, first as a postdoc and for postdoctoral researcher. And now as a lecturer at Western Sydney University, I, I've worked on a, on a bunch of things. My main sort of scientific research area is galaxy formation and particularly how we can simulate that in the computer. Um, but I've also done work in, um, in this, this area of the fine tuning of the universe for life. Uh, so I've written some scientific papers on that and a book with Geraint Lewis, uh, a colleague and a friend of mine um, who's also an atheist. Uh, incidentally, I caught a fortunate universe. Um, we actually wrote our second book recently, which came out this year, just in time for us to not get out and do any talks to promote it at all. So <laughs> let me just shamelessly plug it here. The Cosmic Revolutionaries Handbook. That one's about the evidence for the Big Bang uh, and particularly what we, what you would need to do to overthrow the Big Bang if that's something you want to do. So even if you don't want to do that, it's a good, uh, it's a good nice tour through the universe. Uh, but that's so... Um, a fortunate universe just sort of laid out this this fine tuning area, and then the last chapter is uh, a Christian, myself, and Geraint, an atheist, just chatting about what we think all of this means. Hmm. So obviously, it seems like uh, as a cosmologist, you've done a lot of work, at least on the apologetic side of reality, with especially with the fine tuning argument. Uh, so, what got you like interested in like studying fine tuning, like the fine tuning argument, and how it relates to like things like the existence of God? So. I sort of got into it by by accident when I was in Cambridge. My my PhD is is actually in a in a, in a much more technical area of of galaxy formation, which I'm happy to explain for the next hour and a half if people are interested, uh, as all people are about their PhDs who have one. Um, as part of that, as a PhD student, we're encouraged to give a talk to the Wednesday night public observing nights that they put on at the observatory there. Uh, and I'd heard of this topic of uh, the anthropic principle, fine-tuning, and so I thought I'll, I'll sign myself up to do a talk on that in a couple of months and that'll motivate me to actually read all of this stuff because, you know, having done a PhD, I was sort of in now in a position, well, being most of the way through a PhD, I was in a position to actually read the scientific literature itself re and, and evaluate um, good and bad on that. So I did the talk. As a part of that, I read a whole bunch of stuff in the scientific literature, you know, good, solid science, just about what happens if you change these fundamental constants. But then there was a whole bunch of other stuff on the internet um, and in some of the philosophical literature and from Christians uh, and from atheists, just that was terrible, just, <laughs> just garbage. Uh, and so I started writing a... Um, Instead of post for a blog that I was um, contributing to and still do, Letters to Nature, um, and, uh, just about, you know, just critiquing these articles. As a part of that, then one of, one of the more famous uh, cr 
critics of fine-tuning, uh, a physicist called uh, Victor Stenger. Um, Professor Stenger put out a book called The Fallacy of Fine-Tuning, and I started writing a, uh, a reply to that. <clears throat> and as, as I was writing a reply, I realized he wasn't interacting with really any of the scientific literature. So what mm. I needed to start by doing was to summarize the scientific literature on fine-tuning, which I'd actually read. Uh, and I realized partway through this that I'd, I'd actually sort of written a review paper. Like I could, I could publish this thing. <laughs> and so I, I eventually did it. Um, I put it, it came out in publications of the Astronomical Society of Australia. Uh, and then from that, once you've got into a field that deeply, you can start to see um, ways that it could be moved forward. So in particular, my, my work with cosmological simulations, we could use those to, to look more closely at these fine tuning cases. And so um, applied for grants to the um, John Templeton Foundation and won those and so did a couple of postdocs on uh, pushing these sorts of ideas forwards with with the, the you know the, the the tools that I have at, at hand as an astrophysicist so that that kind of along the way reconnected with Geraint who was at who was my honors supervisor before I went to Cambridge um, went back to Sydney University where he is now and, and you know, was at the time and, and started working on all this stuff with him and, and along the way wrote a book with him. Yeah, it's a lot of fun stuff there. I will encourage everyone at the end, we will be, we will be answering some questions. If you have questions or objections or things like that in the fine-tuning argument, we will hit some of those on the way out. But very briefly, if you could just kind of like uh, present the fine-tuning argument, just kind of like walk through your formulation of it, I'd love for you to just kind of do that so that people can kind of have like an idea of where you're coming from with this argument. Yeah. So I've actually written uh, a paper for a philosophy journal called Ergo uh, and the paper is called a reasonable little question. Uh, and then there's some subtitle that I, I wrote, but I have now forgotten something about a new formulation of the fine tuning argument. So if people want to see all the technical detail, it's there roughly. I, I, I'm more and more seeing this argument as just kind of an extension of what might be called the design impression or the design intuition that we look at nature and it, the whole thing looks sort of put together. It, mm. it looks, it looks well assembled. We see things in nature that just, just sort of scream out that, that they've been thought through somehow. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you, see a picture of my favorite example at the moment is just to show one of those slow motion pictures slow motion videos of a hummingbird you know super slow motion of it just just hovering it's it's astounding um i think one of the reasons why almost everyone throughout history and even today believes there's a god is 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 this kind of intuition about the world that you know not only where did all this stuff come from but why is it such amazing interconnected complex, complicated, astounding stuff. Um, but then as that's the design argument, that gets you about as far as, say, William Paley. It's about 1800. He's writing his book saying, look, if you walked across a, you know, a, a heath, uh, if you've got a heath near you uh, and you find a rock, you know, there's a rock there. But if you find a watch, even if the watch doesn't work perfectly, you still think someone put this together because... The bits, you know, for various reasons, you know, you can then you then analyze your impression to try and work out what it is about the watch that gave you the impression that it's put together. 
and all and and Paley's argument it's sometimes presented as an argument from analogy and I don't think that's quite fair but basically whatever whatever leads you to conclude that the watch is designed take that same intuition and look at nature and it will look just as designed but then Darwin comes along middle of the 1800s and the argument from his followers then and I'm I'm thinking here of particularly Richard Dawkins but a whole load of people is something along the lines of uh, look, we can explain where the processes that formed the complexity we see around us uh, without actually having a divine hand just sort of pop in and, and actually arrange the atoms of a hummingbird into a hummingbird. So I, th I think then this is where the fine-tuning uh, uh, argument comes in because what that move is is to say, okay, at the level of biology... So Dawkins has this quote that biology is the study of complicated things that have the appearance of being designed for mm -hmm. a purpose. That's that's pretty much a quote, if I've, I've done that correctly. So that's basically saying, okay, biology looks designed, but if we go deeper, we'll find just the laws of physics. And if you're a biologist, those don't look obviously designed. But, you know, we should actually look then at the law of physics. If that's your manoeuvre, okay, like biology is lost, that battlefield's gone, uh, let's look deeper and hope that the laws of physics don't look designed. Then now you're in the realm of fine-tuning. And in particular, one of the things that Dawkins says is one of the reasons we think that the natural world is designed, a way of, of fleshing out the intuition there is to say, look, if I took all the stuff of a hummingbird, if I gave you two grams of matter, there you go, all right, do something interesting, um, most of the ways to arrange that don't fly or reproduce or get nectar out of, of plants. Um, so at the level of biology, we can think about rearranging cells mm -hmm. and most of the ways don't work. If we take that same intuition down to where, you know, we've been pointed by the, you know, the Darwinists or whoever, the atheists, the question is what happens if I just throw a universe together at random, mm. not just cells and just, see what happens but a universe together at random and that's where fine tuning comes in because a way that we can attack that problem is to say all right there are these things in the ultimate laws of nature as we know them at the moment i should say the deepest laws of nature the fundamental laws that so, so far as we know them at the moment there are these numbers called the constants of nature and they mm. they describe things like how heavy is an electron <clears throat> um various things about how the universe expands what if we in some way, throw those together at random in the way we were imagining throwing some cells together at random. And, and a good way of, of doing that, which is actually remarkably precise, again, go look up the technical details, is, all right, um, there's the laws that those numbers appear in, and we can just, there's a range of numbers that they could take in that law. Let's just change them across that range according to the ordinary sort of... Um, probability weightings that we have to do in physics anyway uh and what happens and we find that actually for most values of these constants we get a dead boring universe in which again nothing flies just like you know most of the two grams of matter doesn't fly most of the randomly thrown together universes don't have the ability to produce any kind of complexity at all and we're talking things like no two particles stick together or you know mm the periodic table is gone. There is there is no way to make complexity. You know, the whole universe ends in half a second. We're talking that sort of level of catastrophe. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what that's showing is that your, your intuition of the design of the world, 
which almost everyone has, uh, is completely intact at every level of science all the way down. And that's what I think the fine-tuning argument shows. It, it doesn't get overturned in physics. It's, mm. it's still there. We need a little bit more work to actually see it, to do the set up the experiment right, but it's still absolutely fine. And so the world looks like a well-put-together place right down to its fundamental laws. Hmm. So we'll go to some objections here um, in a little bit, but I think one of the things is like, what are some of these like constants you're looking at uh, in terms of the physics of it? You look at it and like this seems like to suggest fine-tuning, like maybe you could give like one or two or a few examples of those. Right, so there are, depending on who you ask, about 30 of these constants, the, mm -hmm. the fundamental constants. So if, if we follow the, the argument I was taking before, we're trying to get as deep as we can into the laws uh, while still holding on to laws that actually describe our universe. So we have at the moment what are called the, the, sorry, the, the standard models, the standard model of particle physics and the standard model of cosmology, describing how the smaller stuff is put together and how the overall expansion of the universe works. And between those two, there are about 30 constants, uh, 30 numbers that we can't predict, we can measure, but we can't go into our equations and get them out of the equations. We have to put them in the equations. I think the best examples of fine-tuning, um, one from, let me give sort of two, one from cosmology, the, the overall structure of the universe, is there's a number in cosmology, um, that's been around since Einstein first sort of put it in his equations in, I think, the 1920s. Um, yeah, about the 1920s, uh, called the cosmological constant. Now, when Einstein put it in, it was always sort of available in the equations, if you like, when, when he was reasoning from his the principles he had towards the, the actual equations of gravity, that this number could have been there. We sort of, the simplest case would be that it's zero. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1998, then jumping ahead in the story, we discovered that the number is not zero, or at least some form of matter that mimics the way that particular constant works is not zero. There's some, yeah. You know, anyway, we won't get into too many details. Basically, there is such a thing as anti-gravity in the universe. There is something called uh, either the cosmological constant or dark energy, which is uh, whatever either this constant or some form of energy out there, it's making the expansion of the universe accelerate. Mm. So a galaxy out there is moving away from us. We know that. It's moving faster today than it was yesterday. That's what we discovered. Within the equations, there's a range that this constant could have, uh, and there are even reasons from fundamental physics to expect it to be somewhere sort of at random in that range. Uh, so it's its natural value is 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 somewhere in you know randomly in that range, uh, but if you want a life permitting universe, if you want a universe that does something interesting, not just is there, it's a very very narrow range around zero where this constant has to be. Um, relative to the total range, it's the the fraction is something like one over and then a number with a, at least ninety digits, mm -hmm. if not more. Uh, if you're outside that range, if you're negative, the universe just recollapses in about a second. If it's positive, the universe expands very fast and outside of that range, too fast for anything to basically form. So you end up with just isolated particles in completely empty space. 
So the reason we know that there's no life in that universe, there's no complexity in that universe, is we know what's in that universe. There are isolated particles. It's a really easy universe to predict. Uh, and so that's a, a, a really, a, a pretty solid case of fine tuning. At the other end of the scale, we have things like how heavy is an electron, how heavy, the, the basic particles, right, of the universe. Here's the Lego pieces. How heavy are they? If you start messing with those for the basic particles that make up us, which are, for the record, the electron, the up quark, and the down quark, just for fun for everybody. Again, you end up with a very small range in which interesting things happen, like a periodic table. Uh, and outside that range, um, the particles basically don't stick to each other. More exactly, you know, you can get quarks to stick to quarks, but then collections of quarks don't stick to collections of other quarks. So in our universe, the proton and the neutron are collections of quarks. Uh, those sticking together make nuclei, which makes atoms, which makes chemistry, which is what you're made of, right? So we need that whole chain to work, right, from the quarks all the way up to you. Um, with a very small tweak of these numbers, you get quarks put together uh, into something, uh, and then that's basically it. Those don't stick to each other. Your Lego set, you can't build more than three things, uh, and that's basically the end of the story. Mm. Uh, one more I'm curious about. I was talking with uh, Dr. Alexander Proust, um, and mm. one argument he found very powerful was the low entropy of the universe. So yeah. I'm curious, like, what, what's going on there? Because I'm curious, because for something to be powerful to Dr. Alexander Proust, you know, <laughs> it's some, there's something going on here. Yeah, so this is an interesting one. Um, it's not one of the 31 constants, but, um, yeah, I do a talk on this, and it takes like an hour uh, to really <laughs> nail this out. Here's, here's, here's like my attempt minutes. at the short story. Yeah, uh, yeah, here we go. Good luck, everyone. Um, <laughs> We, we, we see around us uh, various processes that go in one direction in time and another. So if you get a glass and you fill it with ice and you just leave it in a room temperature room uh, and it, the, the ice will slowly melt into water and then the water will come up to room temperature and then nothing will happen for, you know, Put some, put some glad wrap over the top so it doesn't evaporate. But basically, if you leave that glass of water there, you can come back in a year, nothing ever happens. The reason why that's slightly weird is if you, if you took that, just say you, you, you videotaped that for a year, right? If you then played that video in reverse, in, you would get uh, almost a year worth of absolutely nothing happening. Hmm. And then all of a sudden... The ice, the water in the glass starts um, ejecting heat into its environment, uh, cooling down, cooling down to the point where it forms ice cubes and then forms these um, cubes in the last, you know, half an hour of the video, all of a sudden out of nowhere. The reason that's particularly weird is that when we look at the, fu the fundamental physics of what's going on here, of ice melting, of um, water changing temperature, there's nothing in the laws of physics themselves that gives us any direction of time. So to put that another way, we have these laws of nature. And it, one of the things you can imagine doing with the law of nature is you put it, throw a scenario at it and it will tell you whether that scenario could happen, hmm. whether that's consistent with the laws or whether it's not consistent with the laws, right? 
So throw a comet into the solar system and you want it to go around like this. And if it obeys the law, then that's the way it will go, the law of gravity. And if you want to do some weird path, then the law will tell you, no, that's not going to happen. Um, if you Obviously, the ice melting scenario is consistent with the laws. The weird thing is the ice spontaneously refreezing at, at room temperature, the let's hit reverse on that process, that one is also consistent with the laws. And yet we've no one's ever seen that in the history of the universe. We, you've, you've never seen ice spontaneously melt at room, um, spontaneously refreeze at room temperature. Hmm. Why is that? It's related, when we describe that, it's related to something called the second law of thermodynamics. That's how we sort of quantify which processes only go forwards in times versus which one actually do go forwards and backwards in time. So the, the, the question is, how do you put together these two ideas that f there are so many processes around us, so many things around us, which go in one direction of time and never in the other direction versus the fundamental laws don't care which direction in time you're going. And um, as we've sort of put this together, the, the answer that's sort of the most common answer today I think by far the most convincing answer is that you have to have um, a very special beginning of the universe in the following specific sense. It must be the case that at the beginning of the universe, you had what's called low entropy, uh, which is a, another way of saying is that the energy must be in a useful form. Hmm. You can, you can just de define this in terms of how useful the energy is. So, um, if I have a battery, it's very easy, if the battery's full, it's very easy for me to turn the chemical energy in the battery into electrical energy and then into, you know, you know motion, if I put it in a fan or something, who knows. It, right, it's, very, it's a useful form of energy. When the battery's dead, suppose I, you know, I, I use the battery to run electricity to a fan, which turns the fan, and then it runs the battery dead. I've now got a dead battery, and the fan has moved the air around in the room and slightly heated it up a bit. So the energy that was now in here is now dispersed in the sort of slightly above where it was before temperature of the room. Mm. And that's a useless form of energy. The energy is still there. It's just almost impossible to, and basically practically impossible, to turn that energy into another form of energy. I can't get it back in the battery and I can't get it in any other form as well. I've just got a slightly hotter room. That's another, that's a, a way of seeing low entropy. So the, the start of our universe had loads of useful energy. Hmm. We know what it would be like if a universe was born with no useful energy. It's a universe completely filled with black holes. Hmm. Um, just won the Nobel prize. Last night, by the way, if you didn't catch that, that was for, for the discovery of a black hole at the center of our solar system. Um, uh, uh, Andrea Gez, go look up what the stuff she's doing. It's amazing. And Roger Penrose. Um, and, uh, uh, and Reinhardt, the other guy. Anyway. <laughs> I don't know. Just, just edit that in and I'll pretend I knew his name. Um, so... Our universe has loads of useful energy at the beginning, and you, it, it's it's beyond 
you know, plausibility beyond belief that it was just a random fluctuation at the beginning of the universe for two reasons. The probability against it is just absurdly low. You get this number 10 to the 10 to the 123 that's actually Penrose is famous for. Now, now Nobel Prize winning Roger Penrose. Uh, and secondly, if, if you're waiting around for a fluctuation to give you the universe we see around us, um, there's less order in the universe today than there was in the past. And so if you want a random fluctuation to give the order we see, the cheapest thing to do, the easiest miracle, is to just get today uh, rather than the, the past. And so the easiest way to make the universe today is not to make a consistent universe with a history where we have memories of, of a past that actually happened. It's actually just to create the universe as it is today with a whole bunch of false memories. Probabilities-wise, that's easier. So for all these sorts of reasons, yeah, we live in a what seems like on face value a very highly non-typical universe that has loads of free useful energy at the beginning so that there can be an arrow of time. And not again, there was, there was a lot of chances for a universe to be completely boring, just black holes and nothing else happens. But that's not the way our universe turned out. Well, I mean, fortunately, we do have a universe. It's not just a bunch of black holes. Uh, yeah. So thank you so much, Susan Lambeau, for becoming a member and saying that we have the best guests on. I guess it's just because of Luke. Uh, so yeah. thank you so much for your support. Really appreciate uh, the member becoming a member and supporting it here in Apologetics. Uh, so let's talk about some common objections. There's a lot of different areas we could go. So I kind of just put together some of like the most common things, maybe whether it's through online or versus like actual scholarship, because, you know, those things can be very different from time to time. Um, but one, I think the most popular ideas is the multiverse. So mm -hmm. I'm sure like in almost any response uh, to a fine tuning argument, you're going to say, Hey, a multiverse is possible. And eventually we're going to get a universe like ours. That's exciting. And we have the chance for like, intelligent life to develop. So like when you hear, but what about the multiverse? What's kind of like your response to that, Luke? So I, th I think when you set the argument up properly, the, the multiverse is actually irrelevant. Hmm. So it's a perfectly fine. Well, I was going to say it's a perfectly fine scientific idea, but that, that even that's up for grabs these days. Hmm. Even if it was a perfectly fine scientific idea, um, we... Hmm. Let me start from the start. So the multiverse is the idea that basically how do we get all the right conditions here? Oh, we basically won the cosmic lottery. There's loads of other places in the universe uh, and there's some, for some reason, every different area gets a different set of constants at random. So if you have enough bits of the universe and enough variation from place to place, then eventually somewhere we'll get the, the winning ticket. And mm -hmm. so, or, you know, a small number of places will get winning tickets. And we, we are one of those places. And obviously, there's no one in the losing places to, to sit there and go, oh, man, this universe is terrible, right? There's just no, there's no one there. <clears throat> so that's why we, uh, we see a universe which has the right conditions for life. So I think if you set things up, probably that's fine. It's just not relevant. Remember, the, we, we started off with our intuition, and then we went and looked at biology. And according to Dawkins, biology was lost. So we just tried to go as deep as we could go. Mm -hmm. um, if we really had a good uh, multiverse theory, and, and what I mean there is I want, you know, I'm a theoretical astrophysicist. I want some equations. <laughs> I want some equations. I want to know what the initial conditions are or whatever plays the role of initial conditions. 
I want to know um, what the constants are in those equations, if they have any, how they predict the multiverse, uh, what the distribution is across the universe of uh, these constants. Um, I should say, changing the constants from place to place, I mentioned that before, that for me is the easiest way to imagine a multiverse. There are other ideas about disconnected bubbles and maybe the, the differences were actually back in time rather than in different places. Anyway, it's a, it's a big sort of, uh, it's a big idea. Mm -hmm. um, if, I had a, if we had a proper multiverse theory, then that would become the new deepest level of physics that we would go and look at and ask our fine-tuning questions about, rather than um, asking them about things like the mass of the electron, which we think is a fundamental parameter, which is a fundamental parameter of the standard model of particle physics as we know it. We would now have a new and deeper theory in which the mass of the electron is not a fundamental constant, but is something dynamic, something that can change, something that could be different here as it is over there and over there if you look far enough away. If we have a theory that it can actually do that, then 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 we're, we're at the next level down and we start doing the whole fine-tuning thing again because we're asking that question. The intuition we have about the well-put-togetherness of the world does it survive all the way down? And so the the problem with the with the multiverse is, um, it's not a question of whether a scientific explanation is successful. It's a question of whether um, the success of the theory makes our design intuition false. So um, if you see a hummingbird and you're amazed by a hummingbird, then if there's some process that built the hummingbird, so to speak, um, it seems likely on the face of things that that would be an amazing process. Uh, it managed to build a hummingbird. Mm. And so you go down and look at the lower levels of, of chemistry and physics and fine-tuning says, yeah, actually, the, the kind of universe that can build a hummingbird is an amazing universe. All right. If we had a multiverse, we'd just go down to that level and look at the multiverse and, and ask, does any old multiverse make a hummingbird? Or at least put us in a universe where we're likely to have a hummingbird rather than just be us boringly in empty space in a boring universe or something like that. Uh, but, and so the problem with the multiverse is we don't have a good enough theory to ask that deeper level question. We just don't have it. It's not, you know, we, we can't go and get those equations and look at them and ask the question we want to ask. And so it's fine to sort of play around with these ideas, but they don't, in the absence of any reason to think that they're going to overturn fine-tuning, which gave us no reason to overturn what we saw in biology, which gave us no reason to overturn what we just saw in our, you know, intuition, mm -hmm. then the design intuition is fine. Like there's no... It, it's entirely possible, and given the state of physics, that a you know a, a life permitting multiverse is a rare and amazing thing. You know, a a, a hummingbird producing multiverse mm. seems like it might be an amazing thing. So, having a successful explanation of the constants isn't the end of the story. The the question is not whether we have a successful explanation, whether whether we have some sort of you know boring, simple. Uh, natural, uh, couldn't have been otherwise explanation of the constants. Mm. 
Uh, next objection we'll bring up, it's actually, it was a live question, but um, we'll get to the other live question at the end, but we'll put this in now because it's a really common objection and a, a very interesting one to think about. Um, and it's the idea of like appealing to brute facts. Like someone like Oppie would say that fine tuning is brute, but also search that it would be brute on theism because we can't know why God did it. Uh, what are Luke's thoughts? So there are a couple questions. Uh, one was like, what's your elevator pitch against brute facts? Um, but like, what do you think about like fine tuning just being like some sort of brute fact? Uh, I, I have to say, I struggle to understand <laughs> what Oppie's going on about. Uh, I'm an astronomer. There's no reason I would understand. I mean, he's a philosopher. Um, it, it just seems to me... Uh, I don't know when, you, when you're when you allowed to make that manoeuvre. Here's the problem. He... he if I, underst if I understand what he's coming from correctly, and I need to go and read a bit more deeply, but it looks to me like under some circumstances you can just take the way things are and there's no deeper reason why they are the way mm -hmm. things are. There's nothing like any sort of necessity there. And you're allowed to sort of wave your magic wand and say brute necessity or brute fact or whatever. And then uh, as a result of that, th the... No further explanation of that thing is needed or um, that explanation now no longer suffers from, uh, th that fact no longer suffers from not having an explanation. It's mm. fine with it. It's cool. Um, when are you allowed to use that magic wand? This I've never understood mm. why on earth that would be the case. Um, but to the second half of the question, um, yeah, so I, I just to, I guess my if I tried to formalize that my, my argument would be something along, maybe a, like a reductio ad absurdum or a you know proves too much or something like that like you know unless you've got you, you've got to give me some sort of account of when I'm allowed to use that magic wand otherwise chaos ensues and anything gets explained and, and we're all in 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 deep trouble I I think he'd say something along the lines of you're allowed to use it when there are other explanatory virtues to using it. Hmm. Um, and I think that might be enough just to open up the door for fine-tuning again. It just it just comes, you know. Um, but I'd, I'd have to look at that in a bit more detail. Um, it would be brute on theism because we can't know why God did it. So I, I look at this in the paper I mentioned, a reasonable little question. My answer to this is, um, ignoring ideas about brute necessity for the universe, if you just compare uh, what the theist doesn't know is what God's intentions might be for a universe and what the what the naturalist doesn't know at the level of if we're just we're just changing the fundamental laws, which, which constants might come up in the universe if we're mm -hmm. just considering things at that level. Um, those are not equivalent situations i mean uh what fine tuning shows is that the kind of probability probabilities that get generated by not knowing the constants and having to guess them and then seeing if life turns out the the, the probabilities for that are you know one in, in numbers with a hundred and the, the calculation i do in in the paper gets about 130 digits or something mm -hmm. whereas What's the probability that God would want to create a universe in which um, there are embodied moral agents? Now, even if you say, I don't know, but 
you know, one in a billion or something, you're still not in the ballpark of 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 that. And it seems the 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 only move you could make at that point is the one that actually Neil Manson tries to make in a recent paper of his, where he says that probability is simply inscrutable. We can't know what that is, and so the whole idea is is shipwrecked. The problem with that for me is it seems like that's the equivalent of arguing. You know, we should reason as if the probability that God would create a life meaning universe is zero, as if it's impossible. That seems way too strong. If you've got to assume that, then you're you're basically giving up the argument. I mean, the one of uh, one thing you could say here is that the fact that this argument appeals so naturally to so many theists, especially once they understand it. So it kind of suggests that actually the people who actually believe this theism thing don't have a problem with mm. the probability that God would create a life, a, a, a universe with moral agents in it. And so whatever that probability is, we don't need to know what it is. We don't have to be certain about what it is. We don't have to be any sort of, you know, sure about what it is. You could say uh, one in a billion and the argument still goes through just fine. Hmm. Uh, we'll go to one more question here probably before we go to Q&A. There's a bunch of stuff. But a lot of times in the fine-tuning argument, uh, you'll say, you know, there's a one in the 10 to the 80th or 90th or 50th or 100th, you know, fill in the gap uh, power of this constant occurring. But when we look at these things, like as a cosmologist, like how do you generate the probabilities of like these things occurring? Like, why isn't it like, let's say like a 20% chance or a 50% chance? Like, how do we determine these probabilities? Right. So that's a technical question. Again, I've got a paper and a previous paper actually on this um um uh, looking at fine probabilities within fine tuning the sh the short story is uh as scientists we propose a theory which which for us you know is a set of equations that the stuff of the universe is supposed to obey or be described by whatever theory of whatever philosophy of physics you subscribe to inside those equations there are free parameters so the equation doesn't just predict everything. There are some numbers we have to put in. There's a bit of input and then we get some output. Um, within the standard model of particle physics, for example, we have like the mass of the electron. Mm -hmm. Now, what do we do with the fact that we don't know what that number is and the, the, the equation doesn't predict what that number is? Well, it means if you're considering the predictions of this model as a whole, you have to do what's called normalization or uh, sorry, not normalization. You always have to do normalization because it's a probability. Marginalization, that's the word I'm after. Got to get it right, otherwise someone will pull me up. Um, you treat these parameters as what's called a nuisance parameter. So, I mean, the whole point of probability is that we don't know everything. Mm -hmm. So being unsure about something is kind of the whole point of the theory. So we can take into account in our predictions the statement, you know, I don't know what this number is, but it's in this range according to this equation. Um, when we, we need to do that for everything. If you want to measure the mass of the electron and you want to, at the end of the day, say something like uh, the probability that the mass of the electron, that the mass of the electron is between here and here is 95%. Mm -hmm. If you want to make a statement like that, then you're going to need a probability distribution over the, the number before you saw the data. This is just the standard Bayesian thing. Go look up the equation in my paper. This is just absolutely standard. You've got to have a prior. That's all we needed, right? If, if, if When the physicist uses that, when they wheel out that, pri that prior, 
um, which just is a mathematical statement of I I proposed an equation. There was a free parameter in it, but I don't know what that parameter is. It's not anything like what it is for for you know. There's no deeper reason for what it is. So there's you know a range it could have. When we mathematize that statement, we get the probability we need then to go do fine tuning. So my claim is simply that we have these probabilities. They come out of physics. I don't have to um, sort of import them afresh. Hmm. Uh, we'll do one more quick question here, and then we'll go a little bit of Q&A. Uh, what about the idea that life just fit into the parameters of the universe? Probably one of the most common objections you'll see uh, to the fine-tuning argument that, you know, life just adapted to this universe and to other universes it would adapt and we'd still get life no matter what. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's false. Um, <laughs> there's not much to be said for it. <laughs> well, I had a friend who I was talking to about this. He was a, he's, a, he's a biologist. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, he immediately objected, look, you know, we've, life is very uh, robust. We found life that can exist at 120 degrees Celsius, you know, 20 degrees above a boiling point and it can exist at, at 20 degrees below boiling point and it can exist in amazingly acidic environments and completely oxygen-free environments. And that's an extreme set of environments if you're a biologist. That is not an extreme set of environments if you're an astronomer. All right, Those are some really cosy, uh, you know, nice and warm if you're in those you know you're fine so most of space is basically a vacuum the only thing there is the cosmic microwave background at three degrees above absolute zero mm -hmm. so minus 270 degrees not minus 20 degrees um occasionally there's uh there are clouds of of stuff at, at 10 degrees above absolute zero um, if you're inside a galaxy, then stars can heat up the interstellar stuff to 6,000 degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, and so actually, you know, minus 20 to 120 is not that, not that bad. So the, the point is when we, when we, as a physicist, when I declare, okay, that universe is, is done for, that one's toast. Uh, I'm doing it, as, I, as we saw before, not on the basis of it's too hot or too acidic or something biological like that. It's things like uh, that universe is going to end after half a second. And that one, no two protons will ever touch each other. And that one, nothing will stick to anything else. You won't even have a periodic table. Uh, and so we can, we can keep things at that very broad conservative level without getting into too much detail. Um, and, and on the basis of those, say that there are some very solid cases of fine-tuning even at that sort of level. Hmm. Uh, let's go to a little bit of Q&A. Uh, we'll hit a few questions, and if anyone has anything else, we'll try to fit it in. The first question here is a super chat from C. Fredo. Thank you so much for the super chat and the support. He says, if there's a brute fact on fine-tuning or leaning towards that even as a possibility, what am I supposed to do with the brute fact that evolution is random? So he might be equivocating uh, the fine-tuning argument here with uh, evolution here i'm not exactly sure what's going on do you kind of understand this uh i'm not entirely let me sort of answer the nearest question that i think this might be asking i'm sorry if i've misunderstood it mm -hmm. um uh, yeah 
So I think when when Oppie says fine tuning is a brute fact, what he what he means is not really fine tuning is a brute fact. That the state of our universe at the beginning uh, could not have been otherwise with all the constants and initial conditions there. That's the brute fact, and then um, the universe evolves from there. And I think he believes there's real chance in the universe, so that there could have been other ways. The universe could have been after that, but not not at the beginning. Um, so in that fact, that's what I think he means by fine tuning. Then evolution is random. Let me just jump on that one quickly. I don't know what you mean by that, but, um, if you read Dawkins or any good explainer of evolution, evolution is not random. Mm -hmm. It has a random component to it, but the whole point of, you know, natural selection is that it's not random. Uh, that's the whole point, right? It's not that you... So, again, Dawkins, this is why he says that, you know, throw together two grams of matter, you won't make yourself a hummingbird. Uh, so it can't be a random process that put together all of this. That's the whole point of the book. It's it's that, that evolution is not a random process. So um, be careful of straw men. Uh, thank you for the question. Um, and if you want to clarify it, feel free to put it in. The next question here is uh, Ramon the Large. He says, what's your response to atheists saying all the dead field solar systems? Uh, God bless. So I think he's obviously referring to like, you know, why is the rest of the universe like lifeless, it seems, if the universe is fine-tuned? So I should say we have chapter seven of my book with Geraint's, which we wrote together, um, the, the bit where we split apart is chapter eight. The, it's just a response to a lot of these objections. I think we got up to, we started A, B, C, and I think we got up to O before the end of the chapter. Um, so this one's, yeah, it's a common one. Um, if you can understand why life couldn't exist in uh, a solar system which is dead or failed, then um, imagine a universe which is only dead and failed solar systems. And then you'll understand why there isn't life there. And then you'll understand why, you know, our universe is interesting. Um, it's no part of the claim of the fine-tuning argument that our universe, we would expect it to be completely full with life, you know, cheek by jowl, as, as, as a wonderful book by John Leslie called Universes. You know, we're just crammed in next to each other for the whole <laughs> universe. Um, and as, as, as I point out in the book, as we point out in the book, there is a reason for the empty space around us. It allows light to travel. So, for example, from the sun to us, you know, it's we get the right amount of sunlight without being completely toasted or, you know, too far away. And it allows the earth to move freely around the sun to keep that constant speed. If you kept, if, if the whole solar system uh, was full of air at a breathable density, like in this room, um, even if it was stable, the Earth, because of the drag going through all the air, would basically spiral into the sun in about a month. So, I mean, there's a reason for the empty space. And um, having so much of it out there just gives us a beautiful night sky. I mean, what are you whinging about? Awesome. Thank you. Uh, another question here from the programmer. It says, Dr. Martin Rees says the existence of the universe is just dumb luck since we wouldn't have existed anyways. Uh, what are your thoughts? Oh, that is not my memory of what Martin Rees says uh, at all. He's a fan of the multiverse. Um, uh, yeah. So I have met Martin Rees. He was at Cambridge when I was there. 
Uh, I've met him since. Um, yeah, as I've chatted to him, no, he's he's a fan of the he's uh, read read his papers, read his book, just six numbers, wonderful book. Um, yeah, so he's a fan of the multiverse. He's he's not the, he's not on the camp of um, if you know if 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 things hadn't been just right for life, then we wouldn't have existed. So how can we be surprised that there's the conditions for life? That's sort of the anthropic objection that that no basically no scientist uses that objection. Um, a very small number of philosophers have tried it, but no, that's not the answer that's ever put forward in the scientific literature for fine tuning. So that's not what Reese says. No, he's a he's a multiverse advocate. Hmm. Uh, might be a clarification here on the question. Um, it says it's a matter of possibilities, clearly proved otherwise. So a multiverse allows evolution and its possibilities uh, that it can't be random if not the following constants uh, in the multiverse and evolution's false. Uh, don't know if you're picking up anything not, here. That hasn't really helped. Um, <laughs> it's a matter of possibilities, clearly proved otherwise. So a multiverse allows evolution and its possibilities that can't be random. <clears throat> if not following constants. So I th let me just answer what might be the right question. Mm -hmm. um, if you, To have something worthy of being called a multiverse, yes, there has to be some way in which what we think of as a constant, the mass of the electron, is different here from what it is, you know, over there somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, it 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 has to be ran to it it'd be random in the sense that if it was just you know, uh, <laughs> if it was designed, then it wouldn't really <laughs> avoid the design <laughs> argument. Uh, and there's there's not really much chance for any sort of you know uh, uh, natural selection of universes, to put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, so the the multiverse allows evolution in its possibilities. Well, it it it, it must create different regions of, of constants. But then what we think of as constants aren't constants, but there would might be a deeper level of constants. You've written down a new theory, which I'd love to see if anyone's got one. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've written down this deeper theory. What are its constants and what happens if I change those constants? Those are the questions we want to ask. Hmm. Uh, one more question here uh, from Andres Ekren. Um, it says, if there was empirical evidence of an infinite number of universes, how would that impact the fine-tuning argument? Um, well, it's hard to imagine how you could get empirical evidence <laughs> of an infinite number of universes. Mm -hmm. um, the important thing for me in, in any multiverse scenario is that you have to... So we have the standard model of particle physics. In that model, the mass of the electron is a constant that you put in, right? Modulo some stuff about renormalization in quantum field theory. Sort that out yourself. Um, it's a constant we have to put in. If you're going to make a multiverse in which the, the uh, constant here and over there are different, we need a new set of equations. Mm -hmm. okay. So the important thing is, but can you write down a set of equations that does that, that, that creates the multiverse we need, and we have some reason to think that that equation actually describes the universe around us? There's some way that we could get some sort of empirical evidence, because we're doing science, uh, to actually know whether that equation, rather than any other equation, is, is a useful description and a useful deeper description than the, 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 the laws. Once we've got that, if you've got that, 
then we've got a deeper level of the argument we can go look at and we can do the next step of the argument. In the absence of that, it, you're just sort of you know, punting to ignorance. Maybe mm -hmm. what we don't know will completely override what we do know. I mean, this was the this is why Dawkins sort of kicks the ball from biology into physics in the hope that physics that looks simple enough and you know it won't be too complicated in design. Look and then fine tuning says no, it is sorry, and so you just then kick the ball further out into the multiverse where we can't see it anymore. Um, yeah, so. Do some more physics, and then we can look at the argument again. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Luke. A lot of ground we covered. 50 minutes has flown by. Is there any kind of like last thoughts, things we didn't touch on that you want to bring up before we wrap things up here? There's one I get quite a bit, which I should just jump. Um, there's the objection, um, there's no reason to th – yeah, how do you know that these other constants are even possible? Mm -hmm. I get this one all the time. Um, and immediately um, some – this is a bit like the 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 Oppie's magic wand. That's a bit mm -hmm. pejorative, isn't it? But anyway, um, when are you allowed to just declare that something is impossible? And it seems to me, if you're going to declare something impossible, mm -hmm. not just not actual, I mean, there's a difference between saying there's no such thing as fairies and there couldn't possibly be any such thing as fairies. Those are two really, really different statements. If you say there's no such thing as fairies, what you mean is, look, we have, you know, video cameras and stuff. We'd have spotted fairies. If there were fairies, we'd have spotted them by now. To, versus saying there could not possibly be any such thing as fairies. Well, if you're going to say that, you, you, need, you don't need video cameras. You better produce some sort of argument to say that there's something internally inconsistent about the idea of fairies. Like, why, why is it impossible for fairies to exist or unicorns or whatever? And so if you want to say, look, in fine-tuning, I have a set of equations that is the best description we have of the universe in front of us. In that equation, there are free parameters, and I can change those parameters without in any way affecting the mathematical consistency of the description. Right? Everything mathematically is fine. Mathematics gives, you know, change the number a bit, big tick, which is why we have to go and measure it. You know, you can't just sit on your, you know, in your armchair and, and say, you know, I'll have, you know, I reckon the number has to be over here. Um, if you want to then say, okay, I, you know, you have a completely self-consistent, mathematically consistent description of a universe which um, is has the same fundamental laws as ours but just a slightly heavier electron, I'm going to say that universe is completely impossible. It couldn't possibly exist. Why? <laughs> for, for Pete's sake, what's missing in that explanation is the explanation. Mm -hmm. well, why? Mm -hmm. Give us a reason. And if you've got a reason, that could be really interesting. It mm -hmm. could be the kind of thing that lets us, you know, derive the value of the electron mass. You could go to Stockholm and get your own Nobel Prize for that. <laughs> right? Tell us. Um, so just throwing out, again, it's this magic wand of necessity. I can mm. just say that these constants are necessary and then I don't mm. have to worry about it at all. Yeah. Um, so I think you're just writing yourself a plan. You know, you've, you're, you're writing yourself a check that you need to cash. Mm. You need to give us some reason why they have to be this way rather than another way. Because I think the default assumption is that if you have a consistent description of the way the world could have been, then that's a possible way the world could have been. 
Mm-hmm. Um, unless you've got some very high-powered metaphysics, in which case, be my guest, do that as well, and we'll, we'll see what what happens. Hmm. Yeah, well, there's so much great stuff you've brought in here in this hour, Luke. Really appreciate your time, as always. Uh, there's a link down below for you to follow Luke on his work. There's lots of great stuff coming. Can't wait to see what's next. And if you're new to it here in Apologetics, uh, there's the book right there's there. There's the book. There's the Shameless. Book. The Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook. There we go. Right. I encourage everyone to check out that book, and I will add a link to that book in the description if you're watching late. Uh, this is it here in Apologics, as always. I encourage everyone, if you're new here, subscribe, uh, leave a like if you're listening via YouTube, and leave a rating over on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And if you enjoy the show, you can support the show, patreon.com slash it here in Apologics, or becoming a member. Big thank you to Susan uh, for that, and everyone who supported and tuned in today. Uh, Luke, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. 